The reason we're not here now um, is has got a lot to do with what we would call desire. When we use the word desire in the spiritual life. It's uh, talking about uh, a kind of an energy at work in us that takes us out of the here and now and keeps us in the past. Desire, attachment. Okay. Desire is about having, getting, and doing. That our mind is constantly working on that. Having, getting, and doing. Our mind is constantly judging how we're doing in relation to others. That's if you're caught up in this. Do I have what I need? Will I be able to get what I need when I need it? Am I doing the right thing? We're going over that again and again and again. And we're constantly passing judgment on the now in relation to the answers to those questions. Do I have what I need? How often do people say, yes, I have what I need? Well, I have what I need when I need it. Of course. Or can we say, hmm, better be, keep thinking about that one and never stop thinking about it just to be sure, right? Am I doing the right things? And so the judging goes on. So in this now moment, there's judging, interpretation, analysis, part of us caught up in the past. All of that is what uh, we would call the false self. And so a real issue in spirituality is using attention to learn about the false self that everybody has. False self is not a developmental stage. It's not something that psychology writes about. It's something that only makes sense if we're committed to a kind of a relationship with God and we discover the false self. Or we're committed at least to living a life of love then we discover the false self. False self is a whole dimension of who we are that touches every developmental stage and every faculty, every part of our nature. It's kind of like a cancer, you might say. And what do I mean by a false self? I mean that, that we have within us a whole system of conditioning and judging and evaluating that is concerned with becoming acceptable and doing the right things and having the right things and getting the right things. And its presumption is, number one, that we are not acceptable. Number two, that we're not doing the right things. Number three, that we don't have what we need. And number four, that we'd better do something to make sure we correct all those problems. In other words, the false self is convinced that it is conditionally lovable and conditionally acceptable. And it is very attuned to getting what it thinks it needs in order to change that position, reverse that circumstance, reverse that whole situation. The consequences of this false self dimension is mental preoccupation, that we've stuck a question into the mind, how to become OK, how to become acceptable, how to be sure I have what I need when I need it. We've stuck those questions in there. And think about any one of those questions. How to be OK. The presumption is you're not. How to be OK. 
Where do you learn the answer to that from the culture? What are the answers? They keep changing. One way to be okay is to get approval from others. What do you have to do to get that? That keeps changing. And the other has the answer, not you. So there's mental preoccupation that comes from this computer part of the mind. I'm not saying the mind is only a computer, but there's certainly part of it that works like that, that is about solving problems. And the problem that the false self is trying to solve is the problem of me. See, the false self accepts the premise that I am a problem that has to be solved. And the way it is solved is by doing the right things and getting the right things. And of course, the right things might include the approval of others, might include doing things perfectly, being in control, not letting people see my dark side or feelings. Mental preoccupation. The computer is constantly on. It's never a problem that can be solved. How to do it right. We might bring it into the spiritual life and have a religious false self, which is the worst of all. Where now we see religion as the way to finally be okay because it tells us the right things to do. <laughs> and that's what the Pharisee is, is the person who in the Gospels believes they are the okayest of the okay because they're doing all the right things. Consequence of the false self is emotional pain, the experience of shame, which is I'm not okay, the experience of guilt because we never quite get it right, the experience of fear, we're out of the now. Maybe we don't have what we need. Maybe we won't have what we need when we need it. Anxiety. All of those come from the false self. In a world where there would be no false self, people would still have feelings and emotional pain. You could still have loneliness at times. You could perhaps even still have guilt. Not a guilt that comes from sin, but a guilt that comes from making a mistake and hurting another uh, inadvertently. But you wouldn't have the kind of fear that people have or the harsh self-judgment that people have or you wouldn't have the resentment that people have. But you would have feelings just as our Lord had feelings, right? You could have sadness. You think he was sad. First of all, we know he didn't have a false self, right? He wasn't dealing with that as we are. But he had feelings. So I'm not talking about a spirituality that will take us into a state of apathos or apathy or indifference in the sense of no feeling about anything. I don't care what anybody does. I don't care. You know, I'm free. <laughs> That's not the kind of freedom we're talking about. So uh, it's, it's really important, I think, to nuance some of these things as much as possible because uh, if you don't have a, an understanding of them, you can, you can throw some very good things out. While you're dealing with the false self, you could throw some healthy things out. So re dealing with the false self means that we accept our feeling nature, recognizing there's a healthy feeling nature. Another consequence of the false self system is self-concern, selfishness. When I am afraid and in pain, it's very hard to see you, right? How many of you ever have a toothache or had a toothache? When you had a toothache, were you thinking about the condition of the poor in the third world? No. What were you thinking about? Yourself and maybe the dentist, and certainly an aspirin, right? And so when we are in pain, as we are in pain, uh, 
when we have this false self active and operating, uh, there is a self-centeredness, a self-focus, a self-preoccupation that comes with that. How did we get this way? Why do we have this? Again, our tradition tells us some things about that. And, and by the way, every religion of the world is, is in, in pretty much accord on this whole false self as being the problem. The Buddhists would call it uh, dukkha, this situation of desire that makes us more concerned with getting, having, and doing than with community, justice, and so forth, and harmony. Me first, everybody else second. Everybody sees that that's a problem, but they all have different explanations of why and how we got this way. They asked the Buddha many times, why are people like this? And he would tell him his famous sto story of the arrow. It goes like this. He says, okay, you want to know why we got this way? Let me ask you this. Let's say you're in battle and someone shoots a poisonous arrow into your arm. And it's there killing you. But before you take it out, you want to know who was the man who shot this arrow? What is he like? How many children did he have? Was he a good man or bad man? Would you ask those questions? And the Buddha said, of course you wouldn't. You would just say, help me take out the arrow. He says, in the same way, I will not answer that question. But I can show you how to take the arrow out. <laughs> in other words, he avoided all theological discussion. Our tradition is much more concerned with theological answers, although it's concerned with the practical, too. It shows us a way to recover, but it has a theological dimension. Unlike the Buddhists, we believe we know something about this God who is behind all appearances, the God who is before anything else is. We would say that, yeah, we would use words like sin here, but we would say that this false self evolved in all of us, it developed, uh, because we have been born into a world that is permeated with non-love, or at least with conditional love. Nowhere, not even from the most loving parents, do we experience being perfectly loved all the time. There's usually some string attached. Do any of you have any person in your life that you can say loves you with no strings attached? If you do, you're luckier than most people. Because almost nobody has that. Our spouses love us, but ah, there's some strings attached, right? Sure there are. I mean, we keep trying to get rid of them, but we keep discovering more and more as we go along this journey together as a married couple. Even our parents, they try, but good heavens, they've got strings in themselves, you know, and uh, it, it, it affects the way they love. So our whole developmental environment, as we talked about at some length yesterday, says, I love you because, I love you if, I love you only if. And as a result of that, here we develop a self-understanding that says, I am lovable because. I am loved if. I am acceptable only if. And, and however we respond to the if and because, that's the false self. You follow what I'm saying? How did we get this way? Okay, there we have the arrow, and now we can say, it was shot into us by all kinds of people. And we've all learned our lessons. We've been taught that we're conditionally lovable, conditionally acceptable, and we have to be constantly on our toes to meet these conditions. 
that are held more by the culture and other people. We've been taught that the now is not enough. We've been taught that we don't have enough, that what we have is insufficient. We've been taught that the now is not enough. It's insufficient. We've been taught that the way you become okay is by doing, that your worth as a person is determined by what you do and not because you exist. And so we're constantly judging, judging the now, other people, relationships. There's a dimension to this false self that is a judging, 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 evaluating. And it's judging and evaluating is in terms of its own standards of having, getting, and doing. We don't know how to just be. As Father DeMello's story suggested. We don't know how to just turn this stuff off and let it go and say, oh, baloney on all that. I'm just going to go sit outside and listen to the birds and not worry about anything. We don't know how to just don't worry and be happy. as that wonderful little song so simplistically stated it, but so accurately said it, right? We don't know how to just say, oh, the hell with it. I'm loved. Forget all that junk. And, and so when the scriptures talk about the devil as the accuser who stands before God, accusing God's people night and day, we have to see that some of that is in us. And not only are we accusing ourselves, but others as well. With the very same standard we apply to ourselves, we are applying to others. They're not doing the right things either. They're not okay just the way they are. Judging, interpreting, analyzing, preoccupation. And the false self says, read more religious material and you'll be able to get out of this. You just haven't read the right book yet. <laughs> and uh, you need to take a class in theology and you need to know more, right? Because that's a possession. My knowledge, I know more. And so it goes on and on. I need another degree. I'll be okay when. It's another one of its volitional agenda. I'll be okay when, and we're all on our way. We're always on our way. You get a feel for what I'm talking about here? Right, that is really a prime concern of spirituality, is dealing with that false self-system. Whereas the, the inner work might not get us too much in touch with that, uh, might get us in touch with some of it, for sure, but you only get in touch with that false self-system, I think, and you only really see it for what it is when you're trying to be here now in love, when you're trying to be where God is, when God is there, as God is there. Because whenever you start trying to be here now in love, then you discover all that energy within yourself that does not want to be here now in love, that is somewhere else doing something else. And then we say, behold the false self. So that part of spirituality is certainly not fun. Seeing the false self and recognizing it and experiencing it is not fun. But that's where it starts. Now I'd like to stop here and to see what might be some of your questions or comments or sharing of experiences uh, about what we've talked about so far something about what spirituality is concerned with, <coughs> attention, how attention gets caught in the past and projecting in the future and missing the now, and how that's about a false self that has been conditioned uh, 
through non-love. It'd be a little theological thing we bring in there. What's going on with you so far as you listen to this? I made a connection building yesterday that I haven't made before, but I think maybe intellectually I made it, but I made it even more today. That when we were talking about addiction, that's why the only way out of addiction is a spiritual way because your center in your addiction is on the mood-alterating chemical or process or whatever. Right. And so since that's Absolutely. so far out of whack and you're so centered on that, then it, it's a spiritual issue. I, I think ultimately it is. One may not become an addict, you know, through a misplaced center. It may be through a physiological route or an emotional route or something. But ultimately, all addiction becomes a, a, a center, the center of centers. And I like to talk about addiction as the spirituality of the false self. How does the false self maintain itself? What, where does it have any fun? How, does it, how, do, how do we, when we're living in a false self, turn that thing off? And that's where addictions become so important to us, you know? It's like, when can I ever turn that noise off? When I'm drunk, or when I'm just losing myself in TV programs, or in uh, gambling, or shopping, or, sexual experience or something, not natural ecstasy, which is a, another route, but addictive ecstasy, which traps us more and more. Yeah, that's the tie-in. That's why recovery from addiction has, has to be a spiritual journey. You can't just do it with some pills or changing your diet, something like that. Would you all like a few minutes just to talk among yourselves in a little group there? about what you've been hearing so far? Let's see a show of hands. How many of you would like that? Some people hate that. I hate that. Okay, why don't you take 10 minutes, and those of you who don't want to say anything, you can just listen non-judgmentally to the rest, right? But just uh, what have you heard so far that makes sense or doesn't make sense or that you learned or relearned or unlearned or whatever, okay? Take a few minutes. In about 10 minutes, we'll take a break. I'll, I'll let you know what time is because I think you need to process some of this. It's a lot of information, okay? Go ahead. Start. I'd like to begin this little section on letting go of the false self by sharing with you a parable called the parable of the rope and this is from Peter Russell's book The White Hole in Time. A mind attached to itself and its beliefs is like a person clinging to a piece of rope. He holds on for dear life knowing that if he were to let go he would fall to his death. His parents, his teachers and many others have told him this is so. And when he looks around, he can see everyone else doing the same. Nothing would induce him to let go. Along comes a wise person. She knows that holding on is unnecessary, that the security it offers is illusory, and only holds you where you are. So she looks for a way to dispel his illusions and help him to be free. She talks of real security, of deeper joy, of true happiness, of peace of mind. She tells him that he can taste this if he will just release one finger from the rope. One finger, thinks the man, 
that's not too much to risk for a taste of bliss. So he agrees to take this first initiation. And he does taste greater joy, happiness, and peace of mind, but not enough to bring lasting fulfillment. Even greater joy, happiness, and peace can be yours, she tells him, if you will just release a second finger. This, he tells himself, is going to be much more difficult. Can I do it? Will it be safe? Do I have the courage? He hesitates. <clears throat> then, flexing his finger, feels how it would be to let go a little more and takes the risk. He's relieved to find he does not fall. Instead, he discovers greater happiness and inner peace. But could more be possible? Trust me, she says, have I failed you so far? I know your fears. I know what your mind is telling you, that this is crazy, that it goes against everything you have ever learned. But please, trust me. Look at me. Am I not free? I promise you will be safe, and you will know even greater happiness and contentment. Do I really want happiness and inner peace so much, he wonders, that I am prepared to risk all that I hold dear? In principle, yes, but can I be sure that I will be safe, that I will not fall forever? With a little coaxing, he begins to look at his fears, to consider their basis, and to explore what it is he really wants. Slowly, he feels his fingers soften and relax. He knows he can do it. And he knows he must do it. It is only a matter of time until he releases his grip. And as he does, an even greater sense of peace flows through him. He is now hanging on to his rope by one finger. Reason tells him he should have fallen a few fingers ago, but he hasn't. Is there something wrong with holding on, with clinging itself? He asks himself, have I been mistaken all these years? This one is up to you, she says. I can help you no further. Just remember that all your fears are groundless. Trusting his quiet inner voice, he gradually releases the last finger, and nothing happens. He stays exactly where he is. Then he realizes why. All this time he's been clinging to this rope, he's been standing on the ground. And as he looks at the ground, he knows he never need hold on again, for he finds true peace of mind. That's what spirituality is about. You might see the false self as the self that is holding on to this rope. And spirituality brings us to the realization that it's not necessary. You're already here now, remember? That's where God is too. There's no place to go we're already in the right place. And when we finally wake up, we realize we've always been there all along. We've just been upsetting ourselves. And when we realize that, we stop upsetting ourselves. Well, how do we do that? <laughs> OK. Uh, not by doing the right things, except in a certain sense of a stop undo, uh, an undoing almost. We have to begin by seeing the predicament we're in. And that's what we focused on in the first half of our, our afternoon session. Seeing the predicament we're in, especially seeing this false self and how it works. 
how, how it's, it, it's rooted in the premise that we're not okay, we're not acceptable, we have to do the right things, how it lives in fear and shame, resentment, the three poisons of the soul. Now, spirituality teaches us how to let go of that, because even once we see it, we're still faced with the question, how do we get out of it? The false self is, is again, like a cancer that has spread through the whole system, through our feelings, through our memory, through our understanding. It's there everywhere, biasing our freedom and our choices. How do you get this thing out of your system? <clears throat> The answer for the Christian is Jesus and uh, becoming close to him and allowing his freedom to permeate us and condition us, as it were, in his way of being. Nevertheless, there are some things that we have to do to cooperate that. But it's not a doing that is piling achievements and knowledge and stuff on. It's, as I said, an undoing. So I'm going to move now to the page we call the four R's of breaking free. I tried many times to make it three R's because then you know like education you have the three R's reading writing and arithmetic we could have three R's of spirituality but it just keeps coming out four and so we'll go with four. The first one is relaxing. And what we mean by relaxing is that we do just that. We try as much as possible to let go of unnecessary anxiety, preoccupation. We try to just be here now in love all day long. And we make this the chief concern of our attention, almost a reminding ourselves, reminding ourselves. Uh, Aldous Huxley once had a book, I think it was called Islands in the Sky, something like that. The people on these islands and the minor birds all day long were saying, it's here now, fellas. Bring your attention here now. <laughs> well, it's almost like there's, there's something in us that has to do that. There are no minor birds to keep saying, it's right here, fellas. Bring it here. This is where it's at. But uh, that's what the relaxing part is, is to say, this is where I am. I don't have to know who I am, but uh, this is where I am for sure. That part I can know. And uh, as I am here, I am here to love. And a tremendous amount of anxiety begins to fall away when we can be in the moment to love instead of to get. Because whenever we're in the moment to get, then there's a kind of a defensiveness and guardedness that seeps in. But when I'm here to love, I'm here to give and to receive. Not just to give, but also to receive. And I know that I can always love in any moment, sometimes just no, not by doing anything in particular, just by accepting the moment in gratitude. That's the first and the most important part in this little spiritual process, is to say, I'll start right where I am from this moment on, being here now in love all day long. That's where God is, and that's what God is doing. And I can do that. I can, I can cultivate that kind of attention, being here now in love. The most important question is, is how can I be here now in love? And it's a, it can be a prayer that we pray all day that I believe is very much a prayer in God's will. Lord, how can I be here now in love? How are you calling me to be here now in love? What would, how, how would I do that? And of course, he knows how to do that. 
perfectly, and he can teach us and show us how to do that. Now prayer is a wonderful way to cultivate this relaxing, because what we do in prayer is nothing else but be here now in love. And of course this can include the reading of scripture, this can include our petitions and intercessions, this can include anything we want to do in prayer. But what we're doing in prayer is we're only being here now in love, and love being God's presence. The rest of the day we're being here now in love as we drive the car, being here now in love as we do our work. We're being here now in love in another context. And so we're, we're bringing a redemptive presence to that circumstance or context by our being here now in love. But in prayer, we're not doing anything else. We're just being here now in love. That's what prayer is about. That's the prayer that nourishes. In prayer, I come to be where God is and to experience God as God is. I come to be here. I come to be in God's presence. <clears throat> and I bring an openness, that openness that love is. I bring that into this prayer. So I have these exercises for silence. That was part of a retreat that I gave. Uh, that won't make any sense for your handout. But any, any way that you can just be quiet with God for a few minutes every day, uh, the more the merrier, I say, uh, that will rub off. Because God is, remember, the one who knows perfectly well how to be here now in love, because that's all God does, is be here now in love all the time, creating, nurturing, renewing, and so forth. Okay, so this is the most important thing to try to do all the time, even this moment. And to let go as much as we can of everything that stops us from doing that, because it's not as important. The second thing is recognizing. And this is where you begin to confront the false self. As we try to be here now in love, in our prayer, all through the day, and I'm not saying you have to be thinking about being here now in love. No, you can be in your center without thinking about it. But you discover that you lose your center again and again and again all day long. Now people who are not trying to live in this kind of center don't even know they're not in it. And they certainly don't know when they lose it. Maybe they never even had it. But if you're trying to live in this way, you will discover some things in yourself, some attitudes, some energies, some dispositions that move you into the past, move you into the future, get you caught up in self-concern. You will only discover that if you're trying to be here now in love. Otherwise, that's your natural way of being and you think that's just how it goes. You won't have a kind of a polarization taking place between the true self and the false self. You won't have that civil war that Paul talked about. So there's a sense in which recognizing means there's a civil war that's going on, and there's a sense in which the civil war means transformation is going on. What concerns keep coming up in the silence and relaxing? If possible, I set them aside. But if I can't set them aside, if they keep coming back, coming back, coming back, then I need to look at them. And you can do this formally, or you can do it informally. Formally, as we did on this retreat, was to make a list of these concerns. What are your preoccupations about? Make a list of them. What do you spend a lot of time thinking about that has nothing to do with being here now in love? 
In other words, what are your fears? What are your anxieties? That's inner work. Taking a look and seeing what is there. What is going on inside of me? <clears throat> what kind of memories keep disturbing me? Okay, and so we have our list. And if you don't want to write them, you can at least observe them in your mind and observe them through the day. We take one concern at a time in the recognizing part, and we're going to break it down. This is how we, we see what has become part of our nature through living in this world that is broken. How has this infected us? What question has this concern presented to your mind? So if you take the concern, let's say you're really concerned about uh, financial security. Well, what is the question that is behind that, that your mind is going over again and again? Will I have enough money when I need it? Will I lose my job? If you can identify the question that is activating all this thinking, that's a big step. Why is this question so important? What do you think will happen if the wrong answer comes from life? You begin to face your fears honestly that way. What have you been doing to respond to this question? Well, I've been working harder, I've been saving money, I've been going to school to, to improve my education so I can get a better job, and so forth. What consequences to you and others have come from your efforts to respond to this question? How has this affected my relationships, in other words? <clears throat> what parts of this situation are you simply unable to change? What parts of this situation can you change? Now this, this whole movement, this recognizing, corresponds to some of the 12 steps, especially steps 1, 4, 6, and to some extent 10, are all concerned with taking a look at what's going on inside of me. Now as you take this look, as you, as you get in touch, we do this with a non-judgmental attitude. Whatever I find is there. And I'm not going to say I'm bad for having this inside of me. Because who, given the choice, would ever have chosen to have a false self? Who would have said, oh, I'm a completely healthy human being now, but I think I'll have a false self for a few years just to see what that's like, and uh, then I'll get rid of it. None of us chose that. None of us chose to get this conditioning that, uh, well, that moves us to upset ourselves and others. It was given to us. And we had many teachers, so we start seeing that. So we're non-judgmental. We're not even going to judge the people that stuck this in us, because they didn't know any better. We see it, and we see it, and we see it. Now, there's an important principle here. What part of us sees this stuff? Isn't that an interesting question? When we, we are looking at what's going on inside, who's looking? Well, obviously, there's a part of us that's not in this, that's not caught up in it, that is out of it already, that recognizes it as something that really shouldn't belong. I call that the seer. You can also call it the true self. The true self is that part of us that sees the false self for what it is. If you don't see the false self for what it is, the false self runs the show. 
The way you wake up the true self is by seeing the false self for what it is, because only the true self can see the false self. That make sense? But when the true self sees it, it sees it non-judgmentally and says, oh, that's there. Oh, that's there too. Oh, this is affecting other people. And it sees it, but non-judgmentally. Sometimes people do inner work with the false self running the show. The perfectionistic part of us realizes that we shouldn't have a false self and so sets about making us perfect by doing inner work. And, and that, you know, will not last long because there's no real serenity that comes from that. Now we're going to become uh, better human beings by being more perfectly, we'll, we'll try to define what a true self is and act like that <laughs> by imitating these characteristics of something. It won't be spontaneous at all. <clears throat> In our uh, tradition, this kind of work, uh, St. Ignatius would have called uh, identifying disordered attachments but seeing the kinds of attachments that have crept in to us that are disturbing us and therefore are keeping us from experiencing the gentle whisper of God's presence. They're disturbing us. Okay, so you see that. And if you can just see a little bit every day, if you can one, learn one thing about the false self every day, that's important. You're waking up when you do that. St. Ignatius also believed in doing the examine. And the examine is taking time at the end of the day to look at your experiences and see what was going on. And he believed that was one of the most important disciplines to do. If you don't see it, then you go back to sleep in the false self. And the false self is a sleeping person. Now what do we do after we recognize this stuff? Then we release it. We let it go. I see this stuff. I see what is there. I make a commitment to do what I can do to respond lovingly and honestly to each of my concerns. So I have a concern about financial security. All right. Part of that is legitimate. Yeah, I'll need money. And this is what I'll do. I think I will go back to school. That's a good idea. And I think I will try to work some extra hours. That's a good idea, too. Well, what I'm going to try to let go of is the anxiety part of all of this. I'll make a prudent plan, but then I'll let go of the anxiety. And I'll let go of the sense that it might come out bad. I'll quit meditating on the negative possibilities. I'll quit imagining failure, because I might very well succeed, too. And I just as soon think about that as failure. In fact, I won't even think about success. I'll just think about what I need to do. And I surrender to God in prayer all the parts of this concern that I cannot control. I can't control whether I'll be healthy or unhealthy, whether I'll get the job or not, whether the economy will fail. I can't control any of that. So I surrender that to the care of God. And that part corresponds to the third step of the 12 steps, the seventh step, the 11th step. All are surrender process, letting go. Identify all judgmentalism that uh, you had previously connected with this issue. Success or failure. In other words, if it doesn't come out right, I'm a failure. I let that go. That's trash. Yeah, it's a legitimate thing. I need money. But success and failure, that's a judgment that I don't need. Oh, I'm in this relationship. I, I do need friends. I, I do need relationships. 
But I let go of whether I'm approved or disapproved. I let that go. Smart or dumb, all the judgment parts, we let it go. I'm not saying here that we can't judge behavior. If you see child abuse, make a judgment about the behavior, confront the person. Uh, I'm not advocating an absolute judgmentalism, but a judgmentalism that has to do with status and things like that, we let that go. We release all judgmentalism through, through affirmation prayer. Lord, help me to continue to work on this project, but to let go of all concern over approval, disapproval from others about the outcome. This is just an example of a prayer. Help me instead to be content with my best efforts and to find my joy in loving union with you in this moment. Now, that's a letting go prayer. One principle we have here is, let, let's see how this can work. See if you can grasp this here. I tell you to close your eyes and count to 100 and don't think of an alligator. As you try that, see how that works. It won't work. So releasing the unhealthy dimensions doesn't mean we just start thinking about what we're not supposed to do. You know, what we, we do is we see it, we let it go, we surrender it, and then we have to bring attention somewhere else. We can't keep relating to this. So once you let something go, drop it and move on. 